Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to John, chapter 15, where we will be considering together this morning verses 12 through 16. That's John 15, verses 12 through 16, and you can locate that passage on page 1060 in your pew Bibles. And over the last few weeks, we have been discussing the Christian life or the life of faith, or as I have titled this series in the Gospel according to John chapter 15, Union with Christ. Jesus used this illustration of the vines and the branches to show the very intimate, close, and dependent relationship that exists between himself as the vine and his church as the branches. The branches are entirely dependent upon the vine for life. The vine provides all of, all of the nourishment that is needed for the branches to grow and to thrive and to bring forth that glorious fruit of the Spirit manifested through things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These things are laid out for us in Scripture not as virtues that the children of God are to strive to make evident in their lives. Rather, they are given to us by the grace of Almighty God as the bountiful fruit of the Spirit, which serves as just more evidence to both us and to the world that we are indeed among those who have been given eyes that truly see and ears that truly hear. We have been marked out in this world as the legitimate children of our Father in heaven, that we in fact do indeed belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have been bought and paid for with a price, not just any price, but with the exorbitant price of the precious blood and the life of God incarnate. These are the things which ought to be evident in the life of the one who has true faith in Jesus Christ, and who is by that God-given faith abiding in union with Him. Scripture also talks about another kind of fruit, and it's the fruit that should not be present among the branches that are truly abiding in the vine. That fruit is also spelled out for us there in the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Before he describes the aforementioned fruit of the Spirit, Paul describes for us the fruit of the flesh, the fruit of the one who does not have the Spirit of God within him, the branch that is not in any way receiving the rich and nutritious sap of the vine, the branch that is, as they say, running to wood. In verses 19 through 21 of chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul says it like this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Then, of course, Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit. And we cannot come away from having our eyes open to our condition by the Spirit of God, seeing our sins, seeing Jesus Christ crucified in order to pay the debt of that sin, still somehow clinging to both Jesus Christ, His person, and His work for us, and to our own way of doing things. Jesus becomes our confidence. He becomes our trust. He becomes our peace. Beloved, that's what life on the, on the vine is like. And I mentioned to you last week that Jesus Christ is the source of not only our peace about the life that is yet to come, but our peace and our ever-present source of joy and comfort in the life that we are now living. Abiding in Jesus Christ is not simply heartily trusting in Him for our salvation, but also believing, certainly knowing that that trust gives us reason to rejoice for Him in everything. When I suffer, when you suffer, when we are afflicted, when life really kind of stinks and is no fun at all, abiding in the vine by the grace of Almighty God, we are driven again and again to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice even while we suffer. I can see the hand of the Father in my affliction, pruning me conforming me into the glorious image of Jesus, preparing me for a future in glory when I will be so blessed as to worship Him face to face. Our affliction marks us as children of the King. We are brought again and again to the comfort and joy of the Gospel. Beloved, this is the Christian life. And I hope that the word of God on this matter is continually being made more and more clear to you. The more I look at the state of the church in our day, the more I see people of God, the people of God trying to find peace and comfort in all the wrong places. As we search in vain for something tangible that we can do to just make our lives a little bit easier, a little bit more comfortable than they are. The most beautiful thing about the gospel is that it is God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believeth on him shall have life and have it eternally. God does the work in our salvation through Jesus Christ. And that will fill the true child of God with hope and gratitude, which leads to obedience as we are nourished, not by the work of our own hands, or by our efforts, but by the vine. The Lord Jesus Christ, who despite us, loves us with a love that is incomprehensible to our tiny, finite little minds. And that, beloved, is indeed the focus of our attention this morning. As we look once again at the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to John, as, 
and life in union with Jesus Christ by faith. Life on the vine in verses 12 through 16. So I'd like you to follow along with me in your Bibles as I read the word of our Lord, John 15, 12 through 16. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have this morning to worship and as a part of that worship to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray that you would attend to that with your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to the glory of this passage, that we might be convicted where conviction is needed and we might give praise and glory where it is due. Father, we pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would transform us through your Word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three things that I think warrant our full attention this morning, or at least three things. I'm only going to point to three of them. There's probably a lot more than three. Three things that warn our attention as we look at these five verses spoken by our Lord to his disciples. Three things that stand out as being full of vivid, striking instruction and hope for those who are the true branches abiding in the vine. All three of these things are born out of the incomprehensible love that Jesus Christ has for all of those who are his. And I hope the more that we look at this passage, that the amazing love of God for his people will sort of stand out to us. We see it really throughout the entirety of scripture. It's continually repeated and so we really need to give it our full attention if we are ever to understand how these things add to our joy being full. Jesus has compared the love of the Father towards him to the love that he himself has for his people. And even considering that ought to always lead us towards a sober humility before Almighty God. Jesus said in verse 9, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. The Father's love towards the Son seems to us to be evident and perhaps even easily explainable. The Father and the Son are both equal parts of the Trinity along with the Spirit. Jesus seems to have, even from a human perspective, somehow merited the love of the Father. 
He has laid aside the glory that was his with the Father. He has come in the the humble flesh of a man. He has, by the power of his deity, endured a lifetime of suffering and yet remained sinless. He was found blameless in the eyes of the law, the same law that you and I do not even come close to ever keeping. He even took the full punishment of the law in our place and remained free of sin, the very even as the very wrath of God was concentrated in its fierce fullness upon him and him alone. We can almost understand this kind of love, love that is surely worthy of the object of that love. But even if we can get that far in our comprehension, we are left sort of scratching our collective heads. As Jesus then compares the love of the Father for him with his own love for us. Do you see the contrast? It really ought to give us pause, beloved, to consider this love that loves, not because the objects of that love are lovable, but in fact, despite the fact that the objects could not be any more unlovable if they tried. This is the amazing love of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, and it should always humble us to stop and to consider this kind of love. Because it's this kind of love that makes the gospel such good news. If we are honest with ourselves and we've had even a glimpse of the depths of our own sin, then we know that we do not forever, for even a moment, merit the love of God. But Jesus came. He lived as a man. He died a horrific horrific death upon the cross for us in our place because of his great love for us despite our imperfect love of Him. This is indeed good news to those of us who know that we do not ever measure up to the Bible's perfect standard of righteousness. But by the grace of God, because of the love of God, we are mercifully given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed to our account so that In Him, in union with Him, we stand blameless before Almighty God on the great day of judgment. Just as Jesus has said that the Father has loved Him, and that He has loved us in the same way, He then calls us to yet another love. He calls us to love one another with this same kind of love. The first thing that we see here is that Jesus makes it very clear to all of those who can hear his word that you and I are called to love one another. I can't say it any more clearly than that. We are called to genuine, spirit-led, Christian charity. Christian love. And even as we hear it, it sounds so obvious, right? It's repeated in Scripture. We know it, we hear it, yet as we look around the church of Jesus Christ, we must wonder how much we truly believe it. Unlike what so much of the evangelical church seems to have embraced as the Christian life and the 
legitimate pursuit of Almighty God. Jesus is not calling people here to love themselves in order that they can properly love him. Though we hear that all the time. He's not encouraging you to fully appreciate that the Christian life in all of its glory is all about you and God together on your own personal spiritual journey. He's not here or anywhere else calling you to incessant navel-gazing, turning entirely inward in order to draw closer and closer to him. No. Rather, he's making it clear that life on the vine is a life that is lived out and manifested in selfless, loving Christian community. What an absolute contrast to the modern day explanation of the Christian life. Surely you hear it. What a contrast from the content of the books that fly off of the Christian bookstore shelves at such alarming rates. Books that point people to 12-step programs, programs for a better you. Books that will fix your struggle with your marriage. By pointing out ways for you to give one another more space. Books that will call you to live independent of all authority except your own and of course God's with a a small g. A God who would never be so bold as to interfere with your building your own pathetic little empire. But Jesus says here, this is my commandment. All right, everybody clear. This is my commandment, that you love one another. It's not a secret. It's not unlocked through the employment of some archaic secret Bible code. It's right there in the text before us this morning. This is my This is your service. This is what you are to do. This is your duty. As I have loved you, you should love one another. Beloved, have you ever considered the weight of those words? No matter how hard you try in vain, you will not find here any justification whatsoever for your holding on to your own little grudges. Do you? There is none. Your anger, even your hatred towards your brother or sister in Christ, finds no support in the word of God. None. Jesus didn't say, this is my commandment. Be more righteous than your neighbor. At least in your eyes. This is my commandment that you love one another. Jesus is giving us a precept here that is rooted in a fundamental understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you do not understand this kind of love, then you do not understand the love that is yours in Jesus Christ. 
If you suppose for a moment that you are somehow right in the sight of God because you have a good, sound understanding of all things doctrinal, but you are a picture of the absence of love towards everyone around you, then I hope, like nothing else, that the word of God this morning will drive you to repentance. That it will drive me to repentance. And away from any false assurance of what it is that will please God. This is my commandment, that you love one another. If you have tasted the love of Christ and the forgiveness of your sins, then you you certainly should be able to keep short accounts with those who have wronged you, no matter how justifiable you've convinced yourself that your anger is. Do you see why the best-selling so-called Christian books are so wrong? The gospel of Jesus Christ is full of his keeping a short account of your sin. Forgiving us before we ever sought forgiveness. We buy marriage books that teach us how to love ourselves so that we can properly love others. Books that promise to give us some secret formula for the perfect God-fearing life. But Jesus says, look. Look at the love that I have for you in the gospel and keep short accounts. Have you been wronged? Have you been treated unfairly? Is your hatred, your disgust, your offense justifiable? Look at the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning and ask yourself, who has been more wronged? Who has been treated more unfairly? Who would be more justified in his anger and yet loves us despite all our offenses? Offenses which make the petty offenses that we have against one another seem trite and puny and silly in comparison. Silly. This is my commandment, that you love one another. That's the first instruction of our Lord here. And I would warn you emphatically this morning to search the word of God and to consider your own heart. Christian charity, the the love that we are being called to here is the subject of the so often misused 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. We want it to be about romantic love and so we proclaim it in our weddings and we go to it to counsel on marriage. It's about the Christian life. It's about life lived in union with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We make it about everything except the love that we are commanded to show to our brother and our sister. Look at what Paul says there. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I am better at proclaiming the gospel than everyone else. But I have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am If I give away everything I have, if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, I have gained nothing. 
Paul explains what Christian love looks like in the verses that follow. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Paul goes on and he ends with this in verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Jesus calls you to love one another. Not in some generic sense. He calls you to love one another as he has loved you. He gave himself for you. He willingly laid down his life for you. If you think that you are approaching God and your salvation with confidence because you have your doctrinal understanding in line, but you remain cross, ill-natured, and cause great harm with the violence of your tongue, Know that you have not begun to understand anything at all and that your so-called confidence is little more than just another false assurance. Jesus says, love one another. And when you do that, when you can easily regard your brothers and sisters in Christ as being higher than yourself, then praise God for it. And recognize His fruit hanging bountifully from your branches. Find confidence in it. And turn away from the worthless, self-serving works of the flesh that usually lead to your anger in the first place. The second thing I would point out to you here is the way in which Jesus refers to his people here. Do you notice it? It's important. He calls us his friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus again shows to us a great test of vital Christianity. He refers to those who obey his commands as his friends, and it is for his friends that he laid down his life. It again goes back to our abiding in him by the grace of God. When we are made to abide in the vine, we are given life. And we are nourished. We are equipped with everything that we need to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Our obedience is not the result of our exalted efforts. But the result of His grace transforming our hearts and consequently transforming our desires. Real thankfulness is what leads to obedience. And even that gratitude comes to us from the vine. You understand, it's a work of divine grace. We are given the Spirit of God within us, and it's a gift. And Jesus applies those benefits to a people that he calls his friends. He's using language here to purposefully encourage both his disciples and us. He calls us friends here intentionally. Words matter. In scripture. The servant is just a servant. He does what he's told 
But he does not understand what the master is doing or why the master is doing it. He simply does it out of a rote sense of duty. So many have embraced the Christian life as exactly that. They've become satisfied in far too little. Because it's so much more than that. A servant blindly serves out of duty. He cares nothing for the will of his master. He does what is expected because that is his duty. But a friend? A friend is brought into the know. He or she is made aware of the master's intentions and then acts out of the love that is a result of friendship. Beloved, I hope that cheers your heart this morning to know that the one who spoke creation itself into existence with but a word calls those who are the recipients of his grace his friends. It's a term of utmost endearment. And it should certainly add to our joy when we consider it. What a friend he is. Right? We, we, we sing that classic hymn all the time. What a friend we have in Jesus. Beloved, I trust as you have given voice to these words that you have reflected upon their meaning. Upon what it truly means to have Jesus Christ as a friend. Finally, the third thing that I think becomes clear here is that the evidence of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is witnessed in our love towards one another and the friendship of Jesus Christ are themselves not born out of anything that is desirable in us, nor do they have anything to do with our own strength, but they are simply the product of the love of God for his people and his mercifully choosing of the branches that will indeed abide in the vine. Jesus brings them back to the true hope of the gospel, and that is his righteousness, his merit, his perfection that gives us any hope at all. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. I think Jesus is speaking of a twofold election here. There is the immediate election of these disciples to their apostolic office. They were not chosen because of their skills or their eloquence or their prolific knowledge of the scripture. They were chosen entirely by the grace of Almighty God. They were chosen in Jesus Christ and in Him. They will be thoroughly equipped to do all that has been given them to accomplish. Their fruit will be the product of his grace and not their skill. But there's also the glorious doctrine of election here. And it is a doctrine like most of what Jesus taught us, which immediately humbles us. Or ought to, at least. There's no room left for boasting in the Christian life. There's no glorying over or in ourselves. There's no reason to think higher of ourselves than we ought to because in the words of the prophet Jonah, clearly we see here, salvation belongs to the Lord. You didn't choose me. Jesus said, I chose you. 
It's his work in us for his glory. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see this doctrine for what it is, it truly is a great source of comfort. It's a tremendous source of peace. It's an overflowing fountain of joy from which we are called to come and to drink daily. My boasting is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. I have no idea why he chose me. But I rejoice in it. I do not deserve the grace of God, but he's certainly given it to me. Do you see it? This is one of those great doctrines of the Reformed Church that so often raises the ire of those who do not confess or hold their faith in agreement along with the standards that came out of the Reformation. They say that this doctrine makes God a tyrant, that it makes him cruel and unjust. They ignore the scripture where it is plain, like here in John 15, and they make the merits and the work of Christ to be of no real effect, saying rather in salvation that God somehow rewards faith, which is the product of the goodness of man instead of the one giving it. But the doctrine of election does not point us away from the love of God in Jesus Christ. It allows for us to rest wholeheartedly in Him and in Him alone. It's a doctrine that views God as God and man as man. It appropriates our worship of God, a God who does not need our help in order to save mankind. But because of his great love and mercy given to us in Jesus Christ, because of Christ's merits, we can worship him as almighty God and never as anything less. This is what the sinner who has been saved by the incomprehensible grace of God desires. To worship a God who is clearly God. That's exactly what we find. And the doctrine of election. The canons of Dort state this so beautifully in the very first head of doctrine. There are 17 articles there under the first head, and of course time will not allow for us to delve into their depths right now. I trust that you look at these from time to time, or that they're at least that you're aware of at least part of the three forms of unity that we as a body ascribe to. I want to tell you they are rich and encouraging and full of life. Allow me to close this morning and hopefully cause you to dwell on the words of at least one of these articles from the Canons of Dort and to consider the great love of God towards you in Christ Jesus as you hear a partial confession of the glorious doctrine of election. And I want to make sure you connect all the dots here, beloved. When I talk about all of our imperfect love, When you you hear the challenge of the word of God, this is my commandment, love one another, and you say, I have not loved well, you're in a good place, right? Because the answer is the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer is God doing what God does as he gives to his elect the gift of salvation for his purpose. You will bear fruit in the kingdom of God. I want you to listen to this first head of doctrine. Article 7 says this. Election 
is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, He has, out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of His own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault, from their primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons, to redemption in Christ, whom he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect and the foundation of salvation. This elect number, though by nature neither better nor more deserving than others, but with them involved in one common misery, God has decreed to give Christ, to be saved by him, And effectually to call and to draw them to his communion by his word and his spirit. To bestow upon them true faith, justification and sanctification. And having powerfully preserved them in the fellowship of his son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy. For the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. This is my commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Does the gospel make your heart sing? Does it make you want to throw your lists away? Do you consider the weight of this wonderful truth? Beloved, do you understand this rich doctrine and the great rest it gives to those who by the grace of God are simply abiding in the vine, being everything God called you to be, by the grace of God, those who have been given Christ. Trusting in Jesus Christ and his righteousness as the sole adequate source for eternal life, Life that does not simply begin once our physical bodies have been separated from our spirits, but is to be enjoyed to the fullest here and now to the glory of God. Beloved, we need not fear the will of God. Living in it is our joy when we abide in the vine trusting Jesus Christ and his words and living in the joy that truly is ours in him. That is what the Christian life, life lived in union with Jesus Christ by faith, in union with his life, his death, and his resurrection. That is what the Christian life is all about. Don't settle for anything less. Amen? Let's pray.